So this is from Plus 972 Magazine. Uh, it's by uh, an Israeli investigative journalist, Yuval Abraham. Uh, came out the 30th of November, so about a week ago. A mass assassination factory inside Israel's calculated bombing of Gaza. Permissive airstrikes on non-military targets and the use of an artificial intelligence system have enabled the Israeli army to carry out its deadliest war on Gaza, a plus 972 and local call investigation reveals. The Israeli army's expanded authorization for bombing non-military targets, the loosening of constraints regarding expected civilian casualties, and the use of artificial intelligence systems to generate more potential targets than ever before, appear to have contributed to the destructive nature of the initial stages of Israel's current war on the Gaza Strip, an investigation by Plus 972 magazine and local call reveals. These factors, as described by current and former Israeli intelligence members, have likely played a role in producing what has been one of the deadliest military campaigns against the Palestinians since the Nakba of 1948. The investigation by Plus 972 and Local Call is based on conversations with seven current and former members of Israel's intelligence community, including military intelligence and Air Force personnel who were involved in Israeli operations in the besieged strip. In addition to Palestinian testimonies, data, and documentation of the Gaza Strip, the official statements by the IDF spokesperson and other Israeli state institutions. Compared to previous Israeli assaults on Gaza, the current war, which Israel has named Operation Iron Swords, and which began in the wake of the Hamas-led assault on southern Israel on October 7th, has seen the army significantly expand its bombing of targets that are not distinctly military in nature. These include private residences as well as public buildings, infrastructure, and high-rise blocks, which sources say the army defines as, quote, power targets. The bombing of power targets, according to intelligence sources who had firsthand experience with its application in Gaza in the past, is mainly intended to harm Palestinian civil society to, quote, create a shock, unquote, that, among other things, will reverberate powerfully and, quote, lead civilians to put pressure on Hamas, unquote, as one source put it. Several of the sources who spoke with Plus 972 and local call on the condition of anonymity confirmed that the Israeli army has files on the vast majority of potential targets in Gaza, including homes, which stipulate the number of civilians who are likely to be killed in an attack on a particular target. This number is calculated and known in advance to the army's intelligence units, who also know shortly before carrying out an attack roughly how many civilians are certain to be killed. In one case discussed by the sources, the Israeli military command knowingly approved the killing of hundreds of Palestinian civilians in an attempt to assassinate a single top Hamas military commander. Quote, the numbers increase from dozens of civilian deaths permitted as collateral damage as part of an attack on a senior official in previous operations to hundreds of civilian deaths as collateral damage, one source said. Nothing happens by accident, said another source. Quote, when a three-year-old girl is killed in a home in Gaza, it's because someone in the army decided it wasn't a big deal for her to be killed. That it was the price worth paying in order to hit another target. We are not Hamas. These are not random rockets. Everything is intentional. We know exactly how much collateral damage there is in every home. Comrades and friends, hello. We're in the shadow of Rockwood Tower. We're behind enemy lines. We're in the belly of the Delaware Way Beast. This is Rob. This is your Highlands Bunker podcast. Joining me this evening, Bill Martin. Hello. Good night. Uh, yeah, good evening, Rob. Good night. Good evening. It's, it's a night. It's, 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 I think you could say night. It's half past 8 p.m. There was a great line at the end of the cold open. Uh, Everything is intentional. I think it was what it was. Yeah. Man, I couldn't have put it better myself. Yeah. And Carl is here as well, chilling on the ones and twos. Um, the reason uh, I, I read that cold open is because I was 
I was once again disgusted by the work of uh, the news journal Delaware Online, the work specifically of Isabel Hughes, our famous copaganda reporter. Um, this week, she wrote a story with the headline, First U.S. weapons to Israel left from Dover Air Force Base. More have been sent since. And, um, I mean, before we get into it, I guess it will not surprise you to know that the uh, context that I gave from Plus 972 did not make it into this. Uh, it's more arc. of a puff piece, I guess, right? Yeah, puff for kill. Yeah, it's a puff like you would do, like you would do for like the woman who played Barbie. And you would follow her around for the day and see what she did. You know, she bought a bag at Hermes. She had lunch with her friends. This is us packing together the equipment to do the analysis and bombing that was described in the cold open. What's so behind, that's what's happening. What's behind that door? It's like it's the morgue. It's like nothing to see here. Nothing to see. <laughs> I, I thought it was funny. Some of the photos that were in the um, in the piece were like stuff just getting unloaded off these big. Uh, military cargo planes in South uh, Israel, but all of the boxes had, were blurred out. Oh. I don't know if you saw that. You were like, "Here's just a bunch of boxes." Uh, yeah, we don't don't worry about what's in them. Redacted <laughs> and redacted. <laughs> so, um, did you read it when it came out? And what was your what was your take on it? Like, uh, what it was it, because she framed it on social media as like everything has a Delaware connection. Yeah, no, and it I'm is, like, it what is the truly, fuck are you talking it's a, about? It's a Delaware mentioned type meme story. Uh, I think I first encountered it. I I kind of hate read these, but there's like a morning uh, news journal email. The Tammy email. The Tammy email. Usually there's something wrong. Shout out to Tammy P. Yeah. She's doing her best. She's she's in North Jersey. Yeah, she and it's very much like, yeah, today's like bologna sandwich day. Like make make that what what you will. Um, but then it's national, be like, it's National Bunny Rabbit Day. Right, Actually, Bunny pet. Rabbit Day, and then it like. The next paragraph is about like murder statistics, and it's like she really does it all. But I think to answer your question, I think that's how I um, first came across the story, and I kind of just I got a few paragraphs in, and I think I knew where it was going. So this, if we do read it tonight, uh, this will be my first time through the whole. Yeah, go well, go ahead and give us the first bit because it's in like three sections. So sure. give, give us the first bit so we can we can break it down. All right, the first shipment of U.S. weapons to Israel left Dover Air Force Base about an hour before dawn on October tenth. It had only been a few days since Hamas's attack, but the U.S. response was swift. Officials had decided that a commercial air cargo group with planes in Israel would send an airliner from Tel Aviv. Upon landing in Dover, it would be quickly packed with quote-unquote advanced weaponry before heading back to Israel. In actuality, the plane was in Delaware for a little more than seven hours. Delaware mentioned. Delaware mentioned again, yeah. I mean, we got we have a Google alert for for Delaware, and we're like, oh, here's one. It's like a Ryan Cormier story. Mm-hmm. Well, we'll get to one of those later. <laughs> uh, by the time the Boeing 747 arrived at Nevatim Air Base, located less than 50 miles from Gaza in Israel's Negev Desert, it was almost midnight in the country. Several men in the IDF's signature olive green fatigues unloaded the weapons onto cargo pallet trailers while others directed an ATV-type vehicle to pull the trailers away. See, at this point, I feel like you're just watching a video. Yeah, like, like it's like, um, remember she did that story about, like, she went back to a neighborhood that she had reported on about, like, crime, mm. and then I guess it got cleaned up, and they were playing, like, one of the sidewalk games and, like, drinking beers after Friday or something, and she's like... Took a huge slug out of a paper bag, out of a can covered in a paper bag. Like she's like writing like a, like a freshman in one of Jordan Howell's English yes. classes writes. Yes, very tortured and like. Yeah, she's like, uh, I gotta describe this. Like, get put that picture in your mind of this olive draft. Yeah, it's the IDF, bro. It's it's the it's the apartheid security forces. Like what you? And again, I'm not saying you should describe it like that. But the way that your your story should somehow allude to the fact of what's happening and give some fucking context. Anyway, go ahead. Uh, yeah, it's funny. So after I said it sounds like you're just like watching a video at this point. So after the Creston's ad, uh, video posted to the Israeli Ministry of Defense's X account captured it all. Less than eight hours later, the aircraft was headed back to Dover to pick up another shipment of quote-unquote advanced ammunition designed to allow significant strikes and to prepare for additional scenarios an IDF spokesperson, told Israeli newspaper Haaretz in October. 
Via email, the agency declined comment for this story. You're kidding. Delaware not mentioned. <laughs> <laughs> and, 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 and I think the Delaware mentioned is important because uh, if you don't know, this is, this, these are, as Brace Belden would say, these are facts. This mm-hmm. is facts. Um, these stories are picked up not only because the Delaware mentioned, but also when you can put the Delaware mentioned into something that has a national thing, it'll, it'll come up in Google searches really quick. Um, that's why the headlines look like that. That's why people kind of put their put their alerts and and look for stuff that they can make that connection with um, for clicks. So this is why this sounds like this because it's somebody who basically found a Delaware connection story, um, but really didn't know how to do it. Mm, yeah, but that's uh, like on a somber note. <laughs> yeah, which is completely like avoided as far as I can tell. Yeah, but but hey, we'll get back into it. In the eight weeks since these back-to-back trips, the plane has made seven additional flights from Dover to Nevatim, according to flight logs reviewed by the Delaware Online News Journal. Prior to the October 7th attack, this particular aircraft had only flown to a U.S. airbase one other time in the last three years, to Dover in May. Delaware mention. While neither the U.S. Department of Defense, the IDF, or the Israel Ministry of Defense has said whether more flights from the base are planned, Given the relative frequency of these trips, the most recent flight uh, left over on November 25th, coupled with President Joe Biden's request for additional aid to Israel, it's likely this plane will be back in Delaware. But why Dover, and why not use military aircraft? Subheading, more than its morgue. Uh, here we go. It's just like, it's like a profile of, like she did a tour of like a Purdue like chicken packing factory. Ooh, yeah. She's like, you know, it's not just chickens. They also have uh, Excel spreadsheets. Yeah. Like, what? What? Yeah, <laughs> she doesn't know what she's doing. She doesn't really know what she's saying, I don't think. She's just clicking all... She's like, I asked the IDF for a comment about how, how many more times they would fly what back, and they didn't tell me. <laughs> you, no shit. Yeah. Like, what the fuck is wrong with you? <laughs> um, okay. I, I, I have I, just a, a funny aside about... The morgue, and I think that maybe it's like worth a minute or two discussion, just um, because Dover Air Force, Dover Air Force Base, I believe, still is like yes, it's the point of entry if you're deceased in combat or not combat. Which whatever. is again, if another you're a service f- member, you y- come into Dover. Yes, which right? is which is again another Delaware story because anytime somebody says something at the Dover Air Force Base, that's what the biggest sort of national and international thing is that. Uh, it's the national morgue. So if you're in the service, whether you're a diplomat or I think that's where like when the when the when the uh, Secretary of Commerce died in like a helicopter crash or whatever yes. and came back there, yeah. um, all of that stuff. When I actually when I started an MBNA in the nineties, my manager it wasn't my first manager, but a subsequent manager in the nineties uh, was a mortician. He was because he was a reservist. He was an Air Force reservist, or maybe he's an Army reservist, but that's where they did it. But anyway, that's what he did. At Dover, like whenever you know, it wasn't a wartime then, so it wasn't as busy as it had been afterwards. Um, but it's really, yeah, it's really classic. funny when you mentioned MBNA. I thought you were going to tell a story involving a helicopter for some reason oh. <laughs> because they had the helipad. Yeah, well, they uh, also had. There's a famous story because Jordan Howell is like fascinated with um, just a little aside the MBNA story because like I lived through it, but he's like looking at it afterwards, and that's how everybody found out that they were selling the bank to Bank of America because they had two helicopters like succession style coming up the the East River, and one of them fucking went down in the in the drink. They they pulled the guys out, but they were like, "Why? Why is the CFO of Bank of America and this and the president and CEO of MBNA on the same air, helicopter?" <laughs> Wait a minute! Wait a minute! Um, but again, that also goes to my um, treatise. Uh, it's really a bunker rule, and you know we know a lot about these kinds of things. You never ever ever get on a helicopter for any reason other than to be evacuated uh, out of a country. That's Absolutely, yeah. or you know, if you're if you're if you're gravely ill and you need to be medevaced to you know Johns Hopkins emergency, but unless your life is in danger, don't put it in more danger by getting on one of those dangerous tin cans. Terrifying, unbelievable. People are like, "Oh, isn't it neat?" No, <laughs> it's not. That's how the 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 the, the Asian uh, 
owner of Leicester City after Leicester City had this incredible run five years ago or so and won the Premier League out of kind of nowhere, this sort of mid-level team. Um, the next year, he died in a, in, a, in a helicopter crash, and it was horrible because there's an empty ground, and it's real murky, you know, it's fog and sort of raining, and the helicopter's there, and there's cameras at this ground, and you know, the helicopter goes up into the murk, and then, like, 10 seconds later, out in the car park, you just see it, like, drop straight down. Mm-hmm. You're like, what? <laughs> what the hell? And you're just like, never get on those things. No. It's horrible. No, that definite bunker rule. But, uh, yeah, the morgue, the morgue is, like, a, the classic uh, sort of, like, when people are like, hey, you, get, you know, get some Dolly's water ta- salt water taffy at the Rehoboth Boardwalk or whatever. While you're there? But like that, to take your mind together. off not the together. Dover for why you're at the Dover Air Force Base. Not together, not together. Yeah. But it's just one of those things, like only in Delaware. Yeah, like a, like a Ryan Cormier cornball shit. Well, my little anecdote. The reason I brought it up. Um, well, so you remember how it was closed to the press, right? Did the, like the press and yes. photographers were not permitted, like anywhere on the grounds of the morgue there. And I was like, oh yeah, that didn't that like just. It, that that policy just changed like what five years ago it was 2009 i guess is what i'm trying to say and i'd for i'd for some reason did not think it was that long ago but it was an 18 year period from 91 to 2009 and i remember that was a really big deal uh during like anti-war protests against the wars in iraq and afghanistan i think that was like something people picked up on now did uh did Isabel Hughes used that context in this piece? Not that I know of, but we're still getting there. We're still getting through more than its morgue. Though Dover Air Force Base is perhaps most well-known by the public for operating the largest Department of Defense morgue, which is also the sole port mortuary in the U.S., this is far from its only role. The base, among serving other functions, is home to the military's largest aerial port, known as the Superport. Through its travels, mail, passengers, and cargo to support operations such as worldwide humanitarian efforts, exercises, contingencies, and emergencies, as directed by the President of the United States and the Department of Defense, a Dover Air Base spokesperson said. The base is also the Department of Defense's largest foreign military sales port, or the port where the U.S. sells, quote-unquote, defense articles and services to other countries and international organizations. Long before Hamas attack, <laughs> hmm. the base had been used to provide Israel with armaments. Okay, well, there, that's what I was hmming at. Despite its current role, Dover Air Force Base wasn't always a transport hub. In 1940, the city of Dover approved an offer by the federal government to build the base. When it opened in 1941, it was known as Dover Army Airfield. While the base only operated for about five years before closing in 1946, it was well used during that time. Military officials conducted secret rocket tests and trained fighter pilots there. In 1943, the Pentagon began sending planes from the airfield to patrol for submarines. Though the facility closed shortly after the end of World War II, it was reactivated within a few years and in 1952 became an airlift base. So this just becomes a book report. Yeah, it's a book report. <laughs> I'm thinking like I have God a friend of mine, who, I have a friend of mine who a couple of friends Actually, who were in the English department uh, at the William Penn High School? One teaches AP English, and I think the other one is actually the chair of the English department. And it just seems like this would be like a high school senior's report on the Dover Air Force Base. Wrapping up the more than a morgue section today, hundreds of thousands of tons of cargo, whether it be armaments destined for Ukraine or Israel, or medical supplies and food, headed to natural disaster wrought locales, are processed through and flown from Dover. A need for more aircraft. Though, De- though, though Delaware's air base is the largest in the U.S., it's far from the only locale that's used for transport. Every 2.8 minutes, a Department of Defense airplane, or one operated by a contractor, departs an airport worldwide, said Scott Ross, spokesperson for the U.S. Transportation Command. The military command, known as TRANSCOM, provides air, land, and sea transportation for the Department of Defense, both through military and commercial equipment. These planes don't just carry cargo, though. They are doing everything from delivering troops for rotation in and out of different places to support for the president when he flies to congressional lifts, Ross said. Thus, between the daily volume of cargo and passengers who need transporting, commercial carriers are key to Department of Defense operations. 
When it comes to armaments, which comprise only a fraction of the Department of Defense's cargo transport, certain equipment must go on military planes, Ross said. He did not provide specifics. <laughs> <laughs> Little shade. <laughs> so which ones exactly have to go on military planes? Oh, boy. Uh, but, I, I, you I'm know reading what? and I'm not paying you attention. Shoo, I got a thing. Got to go. <laughs> uh, let me see if we can wrap this up nicely, though. Passengers were then taken from Kabul to Qatar, from which they were transported by commercial plane to their final destination. That's not good. Um, all right. Operators. I think that we uh, she lands the proverbial plane with a bit more a return to what's going on in Israel right now. U.S. military officials called the meeting soon after learning of Hamas's October 7th attack. It hadn't yet been determined exactly what aid the U.S. would provide to Israel. That would depend, in part on what the country's needs were, but U.S. Transportation Command officials knew they'd be relying on the various commercial cargo carriers they contract with. I know where we can find some of those. Soon, cargo carrier executives had traveled to Scott Air Force Base in Illinois, located less than 20 miles southeast of St. Louis, Missouri. There, there's like a, there's a word count here, I know, there's a word count issue. There, they were briefed on what kind of conditions Israel was operating in, and by extension, what they'd be facing, and what the Department of Defense thought it might have to prepare for. Not long after this meeting, the Pentagon solicited bids for manunitions transport, which Challenge Group, one of the many cargo companies the DOD contracts with, won. By 5.33 p.m. Israel time on October 9th. That's a quick, it was a quick bidding process. <laughs> about two and a half days after Hamas militants ravaged Kibitzim and other locales in southern Israel, the plane from Tel Aviv was on its way. While officials have largely declined publicly to provide specifics on weaponry, that same day a U.S. official told reporters the Israeli government had asked for missile interceptors, precision-guided weapons, and artillery rounds. The official also said the Pentagon was working with defense contractors to expedite some of the orders. Hours later, around 10 p.m. Eastern Time, Challenge Group landed its plane in Dover. The next morning, just after 5.30 a.m., the aircraft was again airborne, this time packed with what would become the first of many munition shipments bound for Israel. Got a tip? Send to Isabella Hughes. I got a tip. So I, let, let me just, before we, before we get down to, the, to the, the meat of it, let me just read this little bit here. This is from um, November 18th. Um, this was in Jacobin. Uh, Ali Haynes. Shut down the companies that are arming Israel's war by Ali Haynes. <clears throat> this is from the, uh, I believe, Jacobin in the United Kingdom. For two decades, anti-war protesters have been among Britain's biggest social movements. Anti-war protests, excuse me, have been one of Britain's biggest social movements. Today, actions against arms firms like BAE Systems are taking things one step further, materially just disrupting the British state's support for the, Israel, for the Israel's war in Gaza. At 5 a.m. on November 10th, 400 trade unionists and Palestine solidarity activists converged on an unassuming industrial estate in Rochester, Kent, UK. They had come in the early morning to blockade the gates of BAE Systems, a prominent British defense and aerospace company. The company makes 13 to 15 percent of the parts for F-35 stealth combat jets. These aircraft are currently being used in the Israeli bombardment of Gaza that has already killed at least 1,100 people. This is from three weeks ago. It's a, as we sit here, uh, it's about 17,000. So this was 11,000, so it's about 6,000 more since then. The trade unionists and activists who call themselves workers for Palestine blockaded a site that manufactures the active intercept interceptor systems for jets that allow the pilot to direct the plane. The protesters blocked vehicles and turned workers away at the gates, explaining the reasons for their presence. Sonali, a writer and trade unionist who was part of the blockade, told Jacobin that she was moved to act because, quote, we have seen carpet bombing of one of the most densely populated places on earth, where about 50% of the population are under 18. People have no, these people have no army. What we're seeing is not self-defense. It is the most barbaric collective punishment. And it goes on to talk about another um, company in Kent, in the UK, Elbit Systems. Um, you've probably seen 
uh, a lot of stuff online about those those um, those factories and offices have also been targeted by this same group uh, of activist um, workers for Palestine in the UK. <clears throat> so, I guess. Yeah, but like my, that my, article doesn't talk about how the supply chain works. No, it didn't. It didn't. It didn't talk about how the supply chain works or the history of 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 like what what was in that what was in that factory before. Mm-hmm. Like, what did they when that factory opened? What did they make? What time of day did it open? <laughs> I mean, like, I, I I understand what's being done here, um, but this is serious. I, I guess my first thought was. This is a pretty fucking serious topic to give it the fucking Ryan Cormier treatment. Like, the thing about Ryan Cormier, which is fine, is he's literally writing about our dopey culture in Delaware. Like, the bars, the beach, the bands, whatever. That's fine. Like, the queen, the guy who took over at the queen. That's, that's entertainment. That's, you know, whatever. But to, 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 to use that same formula, to use that same, we'll call it algorithm, to produce something that has the context that we're talking about here, um, it's not just bad, it's, it's malpractice. It's, it's awful. You know, it's not just like, oh, you know, we, th- you know, you can throw shitty stories in there, write 15 stories about high school football because they get clicks locally. I don't care. That's fine. That's perfectly fine. I accept that. But this isn't the fucking high school football game. And I tell you what, as a Delawarean, as somebody who pays for the paper, I, I was fucking pissed off that it was that this situation, when there's plenty of context out there, was handled like that. I think Isabel Hughes, I think Mike Feely, and I think Brittany Horn should be fucking ashamed of themselves. I'll give you one more. How about this? Let's 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 give one more piece of context just so we we're clear. <clears throat> This was uh, from about a week ago, the 27th, uh, in the U.S. edition of Jacobin. This was an interview, but but I'll just read the first bit of it before it gets to the interview. Um, Dock workers and labor activists can block the transport of arms to Israel. Pro-Palestine, quote, block the boat actions where dock workers block the transport of arms to Israel have proliferated in recent years, recalling the actions against apartheid South Africa. They're an effective way for labor to oppose Israel's war on Gaza. As as a humanitarian disaster ravages Gaza, activists around the world have taken a wide range of actions aimed at pressuring Israel from mass marches to die-ins to blockades and sit-ins. Unions have also ramped up solidarity actions in a range of sectors. While the scale of these actions is unprecedented, they follow on the heels of years of organizing and education campaigns by rank-and-file labor activists. Among the most celebrated labor actions have been launched by dock workers in a number of countries, including the United States, Australia, Canada, Sweden, Italy, South Africa, Belgium, and Tunisia, who have refused to load Israeli ships and cargo and transport arms to Israel. In the United States, major actions took place in 2014 and 2021 under the banner of Block the Boat, organized by San Francisco-based Arab Resource and Organizing Center. And it's happening again. They just blocked. They they were trying to block a boat in uh, Oakland, in the port of Oakland, two weeks ago. You know, they got some of the some of the un- trade unionists and, and dock workers to to walk to walk off to walk out. And I, I just, you know, this is serious shit. And if you're not up to it, because that's the other thing too is like, it's pretty clear. And again, these are facts. We can just call them facts. Mm. That Feely and Brittany and the bosses there do not want to really touch this issue at all. So what you saw so far is, locally anyway, is an op-ed about why did the Wilmington, why is this Wilmington City Council bothering with this issue? They, why don't they do something about Wilmington? Blah, 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 blah. And again, I have plenty of criticisms of the Wilmington City Council. I've given them in here until I'm blue in the face, but mm-hmm. it is what it is. And then they ran Jonathan Tate's sort of rebuttal, mm-hmm. which I thought was excellent, actually. <clears throat> um, and this and this ridiculously absurd Isabel Hughes piece. But, like, 
If you want to stay off of it because you're scared, stay the fuck off of it. You know, maybe your first instinct about not doing anything because you don't know what the fuck you're talking about was the right thing to do. So just because you can put the Delaware story together for some SEO clickbait and people will be hitting it on on Google, maybe think twice about it. Maybe your first thought, your first instinct of like, it doesn't fit our model. You know, it's not it's not within our model of what we're trying to do. Stick with that. Because you don't know what the fuck you're talking about. Yeah, there are just like some... There's some areas they just do not touch. Um, I think even just like the lack of sort of access to Biden's world has always has struck me as very odd over like the last five or ten years. Yeah, like that they don't like, have they there's, don't there's there's no sort of like everything's like kind of a puff piece if there is anything. He was like, at the coin. Did you see him at coin? Yeah, yeah. Like yeah, it shows up in like dining stories. But that's like, classic Delaware Way stuff. Is they'll leak yeah. they'll leak stuff to to Ryan say about like oh Joe Biden's is you know shaking her ass at coin um, because that's like that fits that. But like other stuff, real stuff, they don't get tipped if they don't get tipped off as a like an entertainment puff piece. They're not fucking doing it. And again. Part of it is they don't have the resources to do it, and it doesn't fit their system that they bought into, their shit system, um, which, again, a lot, some of it's not their fault. A lot of it's corporate bullshit mm-hmm. that you don't have the people, you can't pay them enough money, and you have to hit these numbers where shit's getting hit on searches, and you're putting the right stuff in headlines, and you're kind of synthesizing different – you know, it's, like, it's, a, it's, a, it's just a synthesis of – it's almost like AI. Yeah. It's, you know, uh, it's like, like, what do they it's, used to call it? Like uh, – like- aggregation it's like an aggregated article yeah it's just just a bunch of aggregated stuff stuff that you're filling in like we asked these people for comment a spokesperson said this a spokesperson said that and then some stuff on the history of the fucking thing Mm -hmm. um you know that's there's there's reasons for that but the problem is instead of trying to fight that or instead of like trying to work around it in some way they give into it, but then they tell you you're an asshole. Like, I'm off calls with these people. And I like that they defend themselves. It shows that they haven't given up. But they're defending themselves on the wrong shit. Like, you can say, yeah, you know what? I wish we had a people to cover X, Y, and Z this way. But I don't think they would know what to do with that. Yeah. Like, I don't, they don't, like, the, of, of the good reporters that we've seen some still there, some not. Um, they don't know how to handle those 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 journalists because the, the, they're, the, it doesn't fit. The, they they have a they have a program that they're trying to do, and that doesn't really fit that. You know, you know, people get to write the one big piece and then get a job somewhere else. Yeah, well, as they should, I as mean, they should, yeah. sure. Um, yeah, I I just. I don't know how to describe it other than there's just like this sort of like chugging along of that news journal cycle. You're right. It's kind of like they plug and play. It's like, you know, with this sort of like wacky Cormier entertainment with a Delaware angle article is going to be, it'll be like be there every 10 days, like clockwork. And, um, that's a great segue yeah. actually. Yeah, actually it's that a perfect, is a great segue. segue. Folks. Um, to give a little bit of a sort of chill come down after something so serious, we, we have something else planned for you. Um, I wanted to make it patrons only because I'm an asshole. <laughs> Bill said, no, 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 uh-huh. we're doing it. Um, so there was another, there was another very, very funny uh, article that sort of fits the uh, structure um, that we were talking about before. And, uh, it's 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 raised a lot of eyebrows here in, in our in our groups. So do you want to do you want to introduce it, Bill? Yeah, sure. This was I mean hat tip to the News Journal uh, for basically doing a kind of book report story about this Politico article I'm about to read, called "Hi, I'm in Delaware, a la Wayne's World." And you know uh, I don't know where it is downtown, but Biden 2024, the campaign that we're all talking about has set up their head uh, headquarters. In Wilmington. I'm sure it's in, I'm sure they're renting from Buccini Pollen Group somewhere. I would imagine. Um, 
Do you think that they've changed their like LinkedIn location to Wilmington, or you think it's still DC? I don't know. Maybe just like Northeast Corridor, something like that. Yeah, they have an oh, it's a satellite office. Yeah. Um, so I think that Politico is sort of doing a silly, you know, tongue-in-cheek check-in article on the staffers who are sort of marooned in Wilmington now uh, with no coffee shops that are open past like 3 p.m. Uh, you know, no supermarket downtown, uh, you know. So I think that they're, they're trying to check in on these folks to see like how they're coping with Wilmington. And so the tone of this one was a little bit different. I think there was a bit of doom and gloom the last time that they checked in. But uh, again, this is Politico from uh, November 29th. And we, and, and we always go to source material. Yes, they did run a uh, – the News Journal did run basically just a repeat of all of this stuff for the local audience. Yeah. Um, but we, we use primary sources here. We go to the primary right. sources. We don't, we, don't, we, don't, we don't play like that. When the Biden campaign announced that it would be headquartered in Wilmington, Delaware, the main reaction among prospective staff was, really? Delaware? We've <laughs> never heard that one before. <laughs> <Right>. Waka waka. <laughs> Few Democratic operatives were excited about the prospects of moving to the mid-Atlantic city. Many privately grumbled that they prefer nearby Philadelphia or even Washington, D.C. <laughs> no need to move. Five months later, the lament remains. In conversations with more than a half dozen staffers over the past few weeks, dissatisfaction was the common theme. They said that complaining about Wilmington had become a bonding activity for them and conceded feeling withdrawal from the D.C. bubble. And I think this was left out of the... Uh... Of the of the Cormier uh, yes. piece, right? All of this stuff, just the places that they go. It's funny because yeah. he he lists the places they go as like, oh, they're here, they're there, right. and they're in the in the original piece, they're like, it fucking sucks. Man. Yeah, we're fucking here, right. we're fucking there. Yeah. <laughs> uh, publicly, the campaign insists that's absurd. Not only is the DC bubble something one shouldn't miss, but Wilmington is an attractive metropolis in its own right. Staff? I mean, Metropolis, I think, is yeah. a little bit... Okay, even... I gotta jump in. We're literally not our own Metropolis. I think we're part of, like, the Philadelphia, Camden, yes. Wilmington Metropolis. Like, we're yes. not our own Metropolis. We're part of the Philly Metropolis. Absolutely not. Yes. No, I, I think like, that's... statistically. It's absurd. I mean, even, even as a colloquialism, that's absurd. Staff provided a slew of quotes as proof of their satisfaction with their current digs. <laughs> so... They provided a, 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 a slew of vetted quotes. <laughs> Issued a press release... <laughs> Uh, frankly, many of them read as if Wilmington's mayor was hovering over the computer while they typed, watching closely as they picked out specific words. Well, that's a, that's a, you know, they didn't even realize what kind of thought that is. Yeah. All right, here come the quotes. Wilmington belongs in a Hallmark Christmas movie, said Shay Nichelles, director of strategic communications. I have a favorite local coffee shop, independent bookstore, and my commute home is a walk along a main street lined with twinkly lights. I mean, she, what, what she, I mean, she is like a, she does like, she's marketing a political campaign. Let's, let's be, let's, yeah. let's be real. Also, what independent bookstore are they, are they talking about the new place on market? That, like, just opened, the new, that just opened, it like, opened like, November market. 29th, yeah. like the date yeah. of this Cause article. Because yeah. you know they're not going to Tilton Park and going to Books and Bagels. Yeah. They, they're not going into fucking Tilton Park. Can you imagine them walking? There's no sparkly like, lights underneath the I-95 overpass. Yeah. yeah. They're not, not going through Trinity and seeing that the fucking, the, the, the house that they still, the, the homes they still can't get that fucking slumlord to fix yeah. on Adams Street. Mm-hmm. Oh, they got coverage of that, too. News Journal, every three months, they put out like, oh, yeah, he's still not doing it. Well, yeah, because... Which I appreciate. I think I assume that's Mandy Freeze. It, it, is, Mandy. it is Mandy Freeze. And, and uh, uh, thank you. I mean, yeah, obviously, the people who know who we're talking about know who we're talking about. So, But Mandy, shout out, because she's, she's, she's sticking to that. Wilmington has been great so far. For a runner, the riverfront's awesome. The food scene has also taken me by surprise. Have you seen Le Cavalier? It's gorgeous, like Paris, but Delaware, said Rapid Response spokesperson Seth Schuster. Say that five times fast. Rapid Response spokesperson, spokesperson Seth, Seth Schuster. Schuster. I, I, I have an idea for a rapid response. Oh. Turn the gun the other way around. <laughs> satire, satire. Wilmington is no Jacksonville, but nowhere is. Its running path puts Rock so, Creek to shame. What, My, what is that? Where are those what? references? I have no Jacksonville? idea. Jacksonville? Like what? What kind of reference is that? My commute's the best commute I've ever had, and the Coin Bar is a top five bar I've been to," said campaign spokesperson Kevin Munoz. 
You haven't lived until you followed an $8 Euro meal from Opa Opa with a hop across the street for live band karaoke at Trolley Tap House, said comms director Michael Tyler. Okay, I don't think I'd realize this when I read the Cormier piece. Are these all comms and spokespeople? Yes. Okay. It's basically like a repackaged uh, press release that Mm -hmm. they sent to Politico. So they were like, Politico's like, everybody still hates Wilmington, right? And so they just got all the comms people to be like... It's good. They couldn't find one other non-coms person to take one for the team and make it not look like a press release? Um, I don't think so. Was there any other comments in there? Uh, it was all, like, press people. Yeah, no, they're all either comms or, like, deputy campaign staff. Okay. Oh, deputy, that's a little deputy, bit yeah. better. Uh, Wilmington has quickly become home. The lamb bao buns at Bardea, the avocado Caesar at Le Cave, the cold brew at Brouhaha. The cocktails at Torbert Street Social said T.J. Ducklow. Washington Street. Said Torbert Street Social. Here's the, we're, yeah. we're talking about, we're talking about Kay Foster Stomberg. Yeah. Ooh. See, here's the other Wait, thing. Is that the one too. behind? That's, that's behind, behind the Mickey uh, Motos. Uh, yeah. Mickey Motos, yeah. yeah. It's a nice. It's I've nice. I've been yeah. there a few times. It's fine. Yeah. It's cool because it's an old, um, it's an old. It's yeah, one of those still easy. carriage houses that still yeah. stands. There's not that many of them in the city left, but it was a, it was an original, it was a carriage house. You know, with, yeah, that whole area back there is kind of like. Yeah, Midtown Brandywine. Cool, yeah, but. Midtown Brandywine's a cool neighborhood. So, yeah, they like Torbert Street. It was funny. We were trying to figure out, like, where where we could go, like, accost some of these people. But I can't go to a – I think my band from Rooney's carries <laughs> over to the Charlie Tap House. Yeah. So I was like – I and I, I actually would like to go to the Charlie Tap House because I think they have a cool a cool uh, pool table. Uh, but – you know what? I, I I'll, I'll take one for the team and, and just assume that my <laughs> my my shotgun Joe uh, sending off and ban uh, transfers over. Yeah, yeah, because yeah, that's the joke about the places we do go. Because people are like, "Well, we always go to the same four places." We're like, "Well, Rob can't even go to like five different. He can't, he can't even patronize them." Um, but yeah, I mean, to think that they're like at Opa Opa, they're like in trolley. These people, yeah. these ghouls and gargoyles. To think that they're that close to me actually does make me creep me out a little bit. Yeah, um, they're not at the coffee monument, right, Carl? No. <laughs> oh, the famous coffee monument. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, okay. So that was the T.J. Ducklow quote. All right. Uh, the best thing about campaign towns is that everyone moves there, works there, and goes out there. You build a better team culture, and more critically, you do it while living outside the D.C. bubble, said Rob Flaherty, deputy campaign manager. With Wilmo, you get campaign town vibes without campaign town distance. Plus, there's a bar in Trolley Square that has live band karaoke on Sundays. What else do you need? Uh, I hate these people. Yeah, Perhaps nothing else is needed, but West Wing playbook is skeptical. We have ample reason and reporting to believe that those quotes are largely an effort to be kind to a place best known for its chancery court and corporate-friendly tax code. Seriously, Biden staffers, blink twice if you need help. In private talks, campaign aides had no shortage of grievances about Wilmington. The food isn't good, there's not a lot of places to hang out after work, and the entertainment options are lacking. Yes, the campaign office is located next to a trendy, by Wilmington standards, food hall. Sure, the rent and cost of living are both relatively cheap. But even if a buck gets you a bit further at Bardea and the Coin Hotel, how many margarita pizzas can one reasonably consume in a single week? Staffers have, in short order, begun developing common routines. Many go for runs on the downtown Riverfront Trail, frequent the Opera House, and make a ritual of eating at La Fia on Wednesday nights for the tasting menu and attending weekly karaoke at Trolley Tap House. Third time. For some, like Daniel Wessel, strategic communications advisor, this is more than enough. Great bars, good friends, convenient commute, he said in one of those under duress, crossed out, (laughs) campaign provided quotes. (laughs) What more could you ask for? For others, however, there's something more to ask for, their actual home. Several Biden staffers told West Wing Playbook that they still have D.C. housing and go back to the district on weekends when they can. And then I always think this is kind of funny. They end it with, message us. Are you Wilmington Mayor Mike Przicki? We want to hear from you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, what man. a fucking joke. I, I actually, as you were reading that, and I didn't get this picture before, but like 
now that they've given away all of these spots, and, and I, we, I have so much local knowledge, and we have so much local knowledge, we can do those, uh, those uh, like Al Quds or, or Al Qasim Brigade videos of like <laughs> us sneaking up and putting the little, the little, the little arrows. Be like, there they are, get them, <laughs> you know. And this guy just steps out and just fucking rocks it with a fucking shoulder fired grenade launcher. <laughs> That's all satire, by the way. Uh, but but yeah, I mean. Here's what, and, and and again, thank God they don't listen to this. But the thing that I was afraid of, and I guess maybe they've been in and out because I've been there like three times in the last month. Um, they don't seem to have found Nomad, or if they have, they don't mention it, which is good. Like they maybe maybe they do understand and have some respect for like the, the mm-hmm. fucking coolest fucking place. Um. But I'm there, motherfuckers. So if I see any of your dorky asses there, we're gonna have a talk. I'm gonna be like, I want to interview you there. Yeah, it does seem like they just don't realize that any place other than Market Street or Trolley Square exists. Right, definitely the riverfront. It's funny because yeah. they run on the riverfront, but they don't m- mention anything on the river. Yeah, there are things on the riverfront. Some of them are yeah decent. Yeah, I mean there, there used to be a really good vegan restaurant on the riverfront. You'd think they'd mention that. <laughs> Get the fuck out of here! I, I fucking I I. I Again, I, I'm I I I think we we're gonna have to start trying to run into some of these folks and just like, yeah, do you think based on his name you could spot uh, T J Ducklow in the wild? I mean, I think I could actually. I, I know T J du- like funky frames, like he's definitely got glasses. Yeah, I I I um I sent an email. I had to do some like undercover work with the leg hall. Um, had to like, I just, I just had to throw like a little quick jab and I had to look up some people. Right. And one of them was like a, f- some sort of fellow, I-, I guess it's what Medina did, but it was like later on, it was just like a couple years ago. And so one of the people was in that class and they're, they're all like leg hall aides and personal assistants and all of this. Like one was like part of like Dell Dems at UD or whatever. And I looked at this array of, like, the 2020-whatever fellows, the Biden school, up your ass, whatever it is. Every photo looked exactly the way you think it would. Mm. (laughs) Just a bunch of pampered lib dorks. Like, in, in in their own way, there was, like, you know, there was the white women and then... The white guys, and then there's like oh, there's a couple Indian guys, another woman, but they're all in their in their own way look like right out of central casting for like the people who are quoting in that Politico. They article. like yeah, they know they've known about Punchbowl News forever. They they knew about Punchbowl <laughs> News before it even was out. They were consulted on yeah. it. Yeah, yeah, they they were in the bowl. They were in the bowl <laughs> from the beginning. <laughs> like they were they were born for it, and it is just so funny. To see pictures of like, like twenty-four-year-old staffers standing next to like Lisa Blunt Rochester at an event where they're both wearing like lanyards and they're on like a like a platform, and I'm just like, you should jump off the platform and try to end it, you know, try to eliminate your own map, because there's nothing. What the fuck are you doing? What's the point of that? So do you're like here's what here's what I'll do, I will get paid way less, look like a humongous dork to like just support the systems that are that are doing nothing. Like I did it at banks, but it was extremely lucrative, and I didn't have to be a fucking dork. Mm. So if you're gonna if you're gonna just if you're gonna you know if you're gonna just gonna be a capitalist little little scumbag. At least do it behind closed doors and make enough money to fucking answer for yourself. What was his name again? T.J. Ducklow. Ducklow. T.J. We'll, we'll, we're going to find him. Thomas Jared Duplow. <laughs> Diplo. Um, you know, and, and if we do, if we do uh, strike up sort of a, a relationship with him, if we get him into the call studio, the we're going to call him Diplo. T.J. Diplo. Ooh, see, I was going to go with Fucklow. Uh, well, see, we don't know. We're trying to, we're trying to be, we're trying to like get him in here. We don't want to, yeah, yeah, yeah. We don't want to start, you know. We gotta, we gotta go easy. Jesus Christ. 
TJ, give us the real scoop on the Biden 2024 campaign. <laughs> <laughs> Have you met Mike Brzezicki? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, folks <laughs> that's a good spot that's a good spot uh thanks for listening we got a, we got a bunch of good stuff planned um one i think you're really going to enjoy um and and a few sort of local activists um just, just a lot of stuff happening um kirsten walther has uh recommended a, a local advocate that i'm going to be probably interviewing in another week or two very excited about that um but before we go i just want to say two things number one Patronize the podcast. Like, just hit us up. Patreon.com slash the Highlands Bunker. Boom. Five bucks a month. It's not a lot to ask. Number two, very serious about not voting. I mean, we were just joking about Biden. Not voting for that fucking guy. Not vote for anybody. And on top of that, I'm trying to convince other people also not to vote. Now, your particular calculus is going to probably work out different. Um, I'm in Delaware, so all of the things have I have no my vote means zero. Um, we already know everything that's gonna happen. I could write it in an envelope and seal it like one of those old mm-hmm. and then like two years from now, Carl can put it to his head and say, you know, give me that treatment. Um, don't vote. Um, don't don't allow like the dreck that we're looking at at the news journal just be like, oh, I guess I guess there's no context to anything, and we can just just, just ride it out. No, John Carney for mayor. No, not interested. Biden. No, genocide Joe. Genocide Joe Brandon. I don't think so. I'm going to take a pass. Matt Meyer. I just saw him in a picture out at that at that quote unquote debate, which is just like a fucking TV show with Gavin Newsom. Like, I, I, I like Matt. And actually, he's coming on in January. Oh. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to confront him with this. He'll hear this before. He knows I'm going to confront him, but we're going to talk about it. Um, but, yeah, I, I, I'm just not interested. So, you know, please, everyone, consider, uh, consider boycotting. And, and also, um, when the time comes and you have to put your, your, your name on a, on a registration there's going to be a time when it's going to be the Working Families Party. I'm not saying when. I'm not, I'm not saying all that. There's, there's a process. Trust the process. Carl's in part of the process. We can trust the process. I, I mean, nothing. if you really don't want to be a Democrat right now, you can become a Working Families Party now. I know I've talked to several people who have, in fact. Well, and as a matter of fact, let's get into this. This is going to be everybody. Uh, we're, we're going to do this as a patrons only. Uh, left his best uh, from the river to the sea.